Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Jeffrey Roach, co-host of the Holistic Leadership Podcast. And I am so excited uh, here in this new year of 2024 uh, to kick off a new episode with two amazing guests, all focused not just in the healthcare industry, but from a leadership perspective, as well as uh, really organizational well-being, organizational performance, uh, and really how we perform as organizations. And so we have with us Dr. Paul DeChant, principal and co-founder of Organizational Wellbeing Solutions, uh, as also a speaker, author, and executive coach. Dr. DeChant has advised C-level healthcare executives on managing critical problems such as financial and staffing challenges by addressing the root causes of clinician burnout. He is a co-author of the book, Preventing Physician Burnout, Curing the Chaos and Returning Joy to the Practice of Medicine. Paul speaks internationally as well as blogs regularly uh, at his website, pauldechantmd.com. Paul, so wonderful to have you with us. We also have with us John Gallagher. John is an executive coach, performance consultant, and advisor to some of the world's leading organizations. He is the founder and CEO of Growing Champions Coaching and Consulting. John has served dozens of renowned global entities and their top leaders at places like IBM, Mitsubishi Electric, Eaton Corporation, Harvard University, and several billion-dollar healthcare plus systems. John specializes in achieving exceptional results in the area of people development, productivity improvement, profitability, and growth. John and Paul, thank you for being here on the Holistic Leadership Podcast, and obviously, thank you for all that you do. It's a pleasure. <laughs> We're so excited. Absolutely, Jeffrey. Thank you very much. Looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah. So I want to start uh, just to dig a little deeper. Uh, obviously, um, let's start, John, with you, and then we'll go to Paul. Um, why do you do what you do uh, in this work? No, it's a, a, a question that I have to work on every time. The story that I get, and we, while it's not a healthcare podcast, Paul and I, our connections came up working in healthcare ultimately. And one of the things that I got started when I got into the consulting space, I had been in operations for a long time on manufacturing and real estate side. And I asked myself the same question when I got the opportunity to be a consultant. I didn't really want to be a consultant per se, but the organization that recruited me said, well, what about being a consultant in healthcare? And looking at how I was experiencing that and how my parents were experiencing healthcare, I actually felt naive enough to believe that I might be able to make a difference in that space with regards to some of the skills that I had from a process improvement standpoint and from a leadership development standpoint. So I knew that there was a, a void in that space with regards to leadership. And I certainly knew there was a, a lot of waste in that process. So that's one of the reasons I continue to stay in that space. I thought I'd do it for a couple of years and that was 15 years ago and I've been enjoying it ever since. Great. Paul. Well, I started out as a family physician. I practiced for 25 years during that time, had progressive management roles in health systems around the country Primarily got into management because when things went wrong in my office, I spoke up and people said, oh, well, you should be on a committee. You should chair a committee. You should be a medical director. Ultimately became CEO of a 300 physician group. And there I hired the firm that John uh, was working in. And ultimately I joined uh, Simpler Consulting to help us transform, transform the organization around a theme of returning joy to patient care because the processes were so broken. And all the physicians and staff really were experiencing significant challenges and burnout. 
And I knew we could make things better. So we committed to it. We actually achieved it. We got recognized as the top performer across 170 medical groups in the state of California two years in a row uh, and moved our physician satisfaction from 45th up to 87th percentile in the process. And at that point, um, I was so impressed with the support we got from Simpler that I decided I should join. And when I joined and got into consulting so I could do and help support this same transformational work in many systems across the country, um, John and I connected and he's been a great mentor to me, introducing me even into deeper levels of lean and, and how to do this work in the proper way. You know, both of you share stories of meaning and purpose, which obviously are so important in healthcare. Before we really dig into kind of the, the culture elements, the burnout elements, I want to just talk a little bit about the meaning and purpose, because as both of you know, for so long, healthcare was an industry that didn't necessarily deal with the recruitment and the retention challenges in the way that we are today. And many would people would say it's because there was so much meaning and so much purpose. People loved to serve. People loved what they were doing. Um, certainly, you know, there were times, there were pockets where, but what do you think has contributed or led to that significant change where we're now seeing people say, you know what, I'm done. I'm done with healthcare. It doesn't matter one hospital over another. It doesn't matter one healthcare organization. I'm just done. What has contributed to that from your vantage point in the work that you do? Uh, if I jump in first, um, I think it starts actually culturally decades ago. Um, while we have a deep mission to take care of our patients um, and, and do that with empathy, actually within healthcare, we don't treat each other that same way. Historically, certainly physician training and nurse training um, it's, it's very challenging and people are quite harsh on each other. And we come from that background. I think it, it was the thought process was, you know, let's make sure these people are as good as they possibly can be. We have to challenge them in harsh ways so that they never give up that effort to constantly be their best. Uh, misguided, but that was the philosophy. And then, you know, over the last 20 years, there have been so many changes with technology, with regulation with the, um, with the workforce and with society. Uh, and then capitalizing on top of that came the, the, the pandemic, which just pushed everybody over the brink with an existential, truly existential threat. And, um, and now as we're recovering from the pandemic, we just see all of those other factors continuing to increase in their impact. Mm, that's insightful. John, your thoughts? Paul, I th first, I think Paul was spot on with regards to how that worked. And I might, you know, add, well, we'll get into some of the barriers that exist in any organization, any type of organization, you know, inside of the healthcare space, when you have the visibility that it has and the impact that it has on the entire economy of our country. And you understand that the results that we get uh, for the investment that we make as a country, not, not really lining up very well, it creates uh, what is, I believe, chaos inside the system, whether it's through the payment model that you talk about as a barrier, or whether it's through, you know, organizations that are for profit or not for profit, it creates behaviors that don't align very well with the original thought behind the system of being patient centered and taking care of the population and making them healthy. And I think it's resulted in over time, uh, broken processes that have become very difficult to fix. We laid down technology. Uh, such as an electronic health record on top of a poor process, and then ask the physicians to manage that in an effective way and do it in 15 minutes. 
we've created, we've identified who the enemy is inside of this space and it's ourselves. We've made some of this mess. So it's designed to give us the results that it gets and we need to get better. Yeah. And you, and you highlight obviously there what we see in every survey after survey uh, from both physicians, nurses, and other clinicians as to some of the bottlenecks and frustration within the system. Obviously this issue is also a global one. Uh, the U.S. probably, unfortunately, leading the way with the statistics of the number of physicians, nurses, clinicians leaving uh, the workforce. But let's let's start on the physician end. Um, in the fall, not too long ago, just a couple months ago, the AMA and others released a survey that roughly was showing, uh, you know, we've got significant clips coming. But this but this was an interesting one in that they surveyed and asked physicians. Over the next two years, would you consider leaving your organization? And almost half uh, of all those that responded said they would. When you look at this issue uh, at a time when we know we also are still short uh, of physicians and clinicians providing the care, Paul, when you when you think about that from a leadership standpoint, what what gives you hope? Um, you know, to to John's point, we kind of brought out things on, on a broken system. What is giving you hope that we're going to be able to solve this uh, at a time when, when these statistics are only getting worse? <laughs> That's a good question. What gives me hope about this? I think the what has to change uh, is our approach to leadership. Uh, you know, leadership is not taught in medical school or residency training. Um, traditional business leadership uh, from the you know old style approaches to leadership, kind of that command and control, all knowing CEO, um, does not work in some in in the intense knowledge work that takes place inside healthcare systems. You know, health doctors and nurses, almost everybody working in healthcare these days, really qualify as a knowledge worker, as defined by Peter Drucker, somebody who has to innovate all day long. Um, you know, thinking on their feet, uh, knows more than their manager does, and needs to be able to adapt quickly. And you can't control, command and control, micromanage someone in that setting and be successful. So as healthcare leaders learn that that doesn't work and that we need to lead in a different way where we empower people on the front lines and align them, then we can be successful. You know, I, as a family doctor practicing for 25 years, I wanted the empowerment to fix what was wrong in my office every day. When I became the CEO of 300 doctors and 1,100 staff, the thought of all of them independently, autonomously empowered to fix things the way they wanted to scared me to death because I thought we'd fall apart from entropy. And yet I knew we couldn't micromanage. So it's finding that, that approach that empowers brilliant knowledge workers and aligns everyone around the values that we share that, that bring meaning to the work that is key. Mm. John, your thoughts? Paul, the, the empower is such a key word. And I think about that as we go, if we would go into a new organization, you know, one of the first pieces we say is how are your uh, physicians and staff engaged in your improvement process? And that command and control that Paul talks about is if we're setting policy and procedure inside of our organization from a top down and just trying to deploy that to get everybody involved, it doesn't work. So we utilized uh, in our time, that's how we saw some of that success, uh, a methodology such as the Toyota production system lean to engage people at all levels of the organization in the improvement process. We believed uh, wholeheartedly in that system that the person who knew how to fix the problem was the one on the front line and that the only way that those problems would be fixed 
long-term and sustainably fixed would be to engage that group in the process. The other side of that is teaching them a methodology then that they can repeat over and over again. Too many times is a one-time improvement. You go back out and you walk away and you're not ready. That's where that leadership development becomes so important of participating and being available inside of the workplace to let folks know that you care and that you're willing to give them the resources they need to put that change in place and to hold it in place. Yeah. And I think we have to be really careful not to be too Pollyannish about this because as we try to do this work um, and it's, it's less than half of executives are really interested in in its thinking about this approach or learning how to do it differently uh, for a whole variety of reasons. They didn't grow up learning that way and they've managed to be successful enough to get into the leadership positions in these organizations doing it a different way. Why would they change? Secondly, they're under tremendous pressure, just like doctors and nurses are. Executive jobs have become essentially undoable with the multiple demands upon them, trying to aspire to a vision and a mission, yet struggling just to keep the doors open and the lights on. And um, and through all of that, then um, just that that level of frustration, they they're often lacking the capacity inside of their their work life um, to think about something differently and do it differently. But uh, there's there while it's been demonstrated over and over that it works, the number of leaders that are resistant to this change really deeply concern me. That we're not going to see these changes happen unless true catastrophe hits. It takes time, right, Paul? I mean, it takes it takes time to transform a culture into this type of thinking, if you will. And I haven't seen much recent data, but my understanding is that you know the lifespan of a chief executive officer, you know, in today's world, regardless of what industry it's in, is in the neighborhood of three and a half years or something mm-hmm. like that. And you know, their uh, motivation to put a long term transformation effort in place to make things happen uh, is really hampered. Uh, by that type of data, you know, they're being held to these results. They got to have it now. Uh, and it's not something that happens that quickly. You know, th- there's a few things that I think are are really critical to unpack there. Um, because to your exact point with, with a shortened tenure of an executive, uh, only getting worse and worse in healthcare. Let's talk a little bit about the board's role, uh, whether for-profit shareholders or not-for-profit board trustees, et cetera. Uh, many have said fiduciary, just financial, just kind of over, you know, over time, that's their role. Others have said, no, that's a little bit more expansive. They do hire, they do evaluate, and they fire the executive, uh, president, CEO. They also have responsibility. They do usually have board PI, commu- you know, committees, uh, quality, patient safety, et cetera. Share with us, you know, from, from the work you've done, how important you know, for those that are out there thinking about this, that are on a governing board, how should they be thinking about this? Because ultimately, they do have some element of responsibility and accountability. Yeah, so that's that's a great question, Jeffrey. Um, and and there is, there's some variation, but not uncommonly, what I've seen, particularly on not-for-profit boards, is that the board members are not deeply familiar with healthcare. They don't understand the operations or the implications. Um, you know, they've, they often have a good set of knowledge and skills in one aspect of running a business operation, but healthcare is a different animal. So sometimes that's the challenge. Um, and I don't know that they all realize the potential of their, of their position. You know, they do, they, ultimately the board's responsible to hire and fire the CEO. 
set that direction. And boards that are effective, particularly the board chair and CEO relationship, can become incredibly valuable and incredibly empowering. Um, but there's, it's finding that, you know, finding that right mix, making that happen, being committed to that and having a board with vision and a willingness to truly learn. Uh, one of the things a board can do that is transformative is to actually spend some time in operations. Uh, there's a process called immersion days where really forward thinking boards and C-suites will uh, spend a day following around uh, everybody who works in the hospital put on scrubs and booties, follow doctors, nurses, therapists, front desk people, transport people, you name it, just to understand the operations because they're so different from almost every other industry. And pe people come out of that experience and say, wow, I learned more in one day here than I did in six years as a board member about the challenges this organization faces. John, your thoughts? Paul, I love, I love that word, immersion. Again, anytime that I try to go in and, and work with a client, whether it was in our time was simpler or even after that before, is how are they engaging in the process themselves? I mean, if it's if it's simply from afar, it becomes very difficult. They, much like the uh, chief executive and uh, his team, have to be engaged in what I mean by what I mean by engaged in that process is actively participating in that journey, including uh, board members participating on improvement activities on a team to help make so that they see some of those things. And at the other side of that is to, is to resource that with the time that they need, that the CEO needs to make that change back to that uh, length of duration of the CEO. You know, that, that time flies by inside of that role and flying in once a quarter or twice a year, just to have a meeting with the CEO to understand is not enough to understand. They need to help them set a balanced scorecard of metrics and then hold them accountable to that. Absolutely. Um, but they need to be engaged in learning in this process as well. You know, it, it's such an interesting point. And, you know, having, having uh, like Paul, worked in a healthcare system and served in a, you know, in a senior advisor role to my former CEO, I saw that element up close and personal, the importance of that board chair to president and CEO relationship. Um, I also saw it when there was a board chair who didn't have the relationship with the president and CEO and ultimately uh, president and CEO departed and, and a lot shifted and ultimately led to an acquisition uh, of our healthcare system. Um, what's interesting in that point that's Paul referenced is how little we're dealing with a time where boards generally still don't necessarily understand the healthcare system and healthcare systems have become larger. I want to ask both of you about, in the work that you've done, uh, I'm a former community hospital uh, leader. In many ways, I feel we've lost the art of what our community hospitals had, which was that connection uh, to the community. The board members were from the community. You saw them in the grocery store. You saw them at church. You asked them questions. They knew about every little thing. Sometimes they knew about things before some of the executives knew. Uh, about things. Talk a little bit about in your experience, you know, for systems that you've worked with, how important is it when you become larger to still have that anchor kind of framework in place so that you don't lose that connection? Oh, it's, um, well, you're right, Jeffrey, it's absolutely vital. I mean, it's particularly for not-for-profit health systems, they are part of the community. They're there to benefit the community. And if they're acquired by a distant larger organization and they lose control, those local community issues can be um, 
really pushed to the wayside. And we've seen that, and we've all seen it over and over again. I mean, it's, it's no surprise. Um, but it gets down to that, again, the, the role of the board, the board chair, and the CEO of the system being keenly aware of that and staying focused. Those folks should be getting out across as the systems get larger. They need to be traveling or getting out, feeling, you know, experiencing the entire community in order to be able to do their job effectively. What's the most recent word? The Walmartification that was years ago, the Amazonification of the system. You know, that's probably a little bit more recently, and there's something bigger, I'm sure, that exists right now. You know, the Walmarts of the world came and ruined the the local stores. It 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 is not uh, necessarily unique to healthcare, uh, but I had you know, frankly, a, a pastor who told me even as you grow churches and they start to uh, look at going across states and across and create mega churches that as you grow bigger, you must grow smaller. And again, that becomes so much more important that you have a program that can develop the leaders inside of your organization that understand how to cast vision, that understand how to uh, set the goals and cascade those all the way down to the department level, uh, allowing those individuals to understand the impact that they have on the organizational performance. Uh, Over and over again, we read of acquisitions in the healthcare system. They're going to leverage and lower costs for the patients, and they rarely do. We rarely see the fruit and the benefit of that. And I believe that's primarily a result of leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And so understandably, these organizations have, have got to coach and develop leaders. You talked about it earlier on, Paul and Jeffrey, both, you know, the system even of education for a physician or a physician leader today is not designed to handle some of the economic and leadership challenges that they face. They're there to provide care and that's how they've been trained. So there's a there's a transformation of the education system that's going to have to happen as well as we go forward. Uh, and the, the executives in these larger systems in particular, as the system get larger, you need people who understand business and are business able to manage business effectively. But too often, those people, if they have no clinical background, are really hampered in their ability to make good decisions because they do not understand the operations that they're leading. And there's ways to overcome that uh, by actually getting out and experiencing that. One of the things I strongly encourage leaders at every level to do is to shadow the people that work for them, go to the front lines and actually follow around a doctor or a nurse, <clears throat> just like a student doctor or student nurse follows around an attending physician or nurse. Um, it's when you see what's actually happening because nobody's going to give bad news to the CEO if they can possibly avoid it. So the CEOs are oftentimes living in this bubble and they're making bad decisions because they're sitting in a conference room with a committee looking at spreadsheets and reports and don't really know what's going on. And they don't understand the implications of the decisions that they're making on the primary operations, the patients they're serving, and the people that are trying to serve those patients. Paul, it's so much fun when we we would take a leader out, right? And they, you know, the first meeting that you have, and you say, okay, let's let's meet in one of their mahogany conference rooms or whatever that is. We're like, no, 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 let's take a walk. Let's go walk through your hospital, through your clinic, and watch and observe uh, what happens on an hour by hour, day by day basis. And, you know, more often than not, and I would say, I don't know, the percentage is, is higher than 75% of the time. You know, what you tend to hear is that that's not normal for us when you come back, when it actually is. It is so normal in terms of how things are operating versus how they think things are operating. So get out in the workplace, see what's going on, and uh, talk to the crowd. You know, it's, it's such an interesting point. Uh, you know, it reminds me when I was, when I was at our healthcare system, uh, we had implemented, you know, which, which isn't anything 
miraculous, but the impact was truly felt. We had implemented uh, two things. One was uh, rounding, uh, but a, a different way of rounding, non-clinical leader, clinical leader, rounded together in a unit. And the idea was whatever we see, we're going to report through our reporting relationship, uh, whatever we experience. And so powerful. Uh, because from an environment of care perspective, for always being regulatory, ready, prepared, uh, you name it, what we saw was very different. The second was uh, our senior vice president implemented where we would round with the clinical team as non-clinical leaders for the patients. And what was fascinating was some of the stuff that we would get shared from the patients and family were things that they didn't necessarily share with the clinical team. And so, um, but... All together, we were solving things real time, uh, you know, food issues, environmental, you know, environmental services issue, quality, delay in access, you know, you name it. We were solving things real time. And uh, again, I think the difference there is our CEO was a nurse. And so everything was always focused on drive it down to the care practice. Uh, and it didn't matter what your role was. I can remember when they first rolled it out, the non-clinical leaders balked. Why am I? Why do I need to do that? Said, I'll never forget it. She looked at me and she said, why are you in healthcare when you asked me that question? She said, yes, you're not providing the health part, but you are providing the care part. Doesn't matter what your role is. Um, I want to get to, you know, in interest of time, this issue of burnout. Both of you have done a lot of work uh, in this space. And um, we now are also at a time where patient safety issues have grown farther, and many believe it's also connected to burnout, moral injury, uh, which I know a lot of people still don't necessarily understand, but, but it's true, it's authentic. What, what would you want to share, um, you know, ideas, strategies, guidance around those issues? Burnout, there's, I've had the great pleasure of working with Christina Maslach, who created the, the Maslach Burnout Inventory and did a lot of the early work in burnout. She and her partner, Michael Leiter, identified three dimensions to burnout. Many people are familiar with the exhaustion, uh, cynicism or depersonalization, <clears throat> and a sense of inefficacy. Uh, but, and, and most people know that. Most people aren't as aware of the six drivers of burnout that they identified and the relationship between those drivers and the way that the dimensions of burnout. The first driver is work overload. And they've shown it's directly connected to exhaustion. No big surprise there. And most people think that's what burnout really, that's all it is. I'm overloaded, I'm exhausted, and I'm burned out. And there's a lot of truth to that. And that is where the ability to do process redesign and remove waste from the process gives us a huge advantage. When you think that we spend two-thirds of our time on administrative and only a third of our time on meaningful work, the ability to think about the ability to flip that ratio by doing meaningful redesign work and spending two-thirds of our time unmeaningful work and only a third of our time on ministrivia, what would that do for productivity, for access, for quality, for the experience, for everyone? But beyond that, and this is really where managers, even frontline managers come in and have a big impact, is the other five drivers of burnout, which are a lack of control, insufficient reward, breakdown of community, absence of fairness, and conflicting values. Uh, we can dive deep into each of those, but to summarize them to all together, they have all to do with how you manage and whether you're managing a team as small as two or three or a large a system as 20 or 30,000 employees. And uh, they're the things that drive cynicism. 
And so when people, you know, we every pretty much every health system does an engagement survey, trying to see how well their people are engaged and, and what they should be focused on. Few of those surveys really look at those five drivers of burnout, control, reward, community fairness, and values, and think about how the individual managers, supervisors, directors, VPs, and higher level leaders are um, addressing those drivers. When we address those drivers effectively, we can transform anything. Um, but it's a big challenge to change in those ways. Moral injury really is tied to those last two uh, drivers, uh, absence of fairness and conflicting values. And again, that could be a whole, whole podcast just on that alone. Um, it is real. It is an important issue. And people sometimes get into debating whether it's moral injury or burnout. I think it's a wasteful debate. We, each of these things is important and we need to address them effectively. John, your thoughts. Jeffrey, well, it's pretty clear that, that Paul is the subject matter expert when it comes to burnout. He hasn't flashed his book up there, but he's the author. He's written a book on it. He's worked with as a, when I look at it from my background and from the area that I get pretty passionate about, I look at it from the point of that consumer, absolutely, who's experiencing the other side of that burnout with that clinician. So when I'm in there working with an organization and I hear a term uh, that's not real technical, but like pajama time, and somebody said, what is pajama time? Well, that's the time the physician works on your stuff after they go home at night and after they've had dinner, then their pajamas working on their records. And I uh, just shake my head. And being able to see behind the curtains as a as a process improvement expert, you know, it is that's where I feel like I can have an impact in that space because when we can separate those value added activities, and for a physician, we're talking specifically as a physician in this space right now, that's the empathetic time they have to be able to listen to me as a patient to understand what my problem is, and if they're spending any other time uh, on anything else, especially or maybe you know, what they're trained on, obviously in terms of understanding, diagnosing, things like that. I get that. I That's like a given when I go in, but I want them to focus their energy on me. And if they're tied into the computer while they're there, or they're not able to understand and have to run to the next 15 minute appointment because of the way the payment model works, that's something that I believe a systematic approach to problem solving can work. Separating out those value added and non-value added activities, eliminate as much as you can in terms of those activities by either automating or delegating or having it done at the right level of the organization and ultimately measuring how you get folks home on time uh, when their records are closed. But from a process standpoint, that's how I think that you uh, improve and reduce it at the most basic level. Paul talks about it in terms of the methodology to go through is we've got to redesign the way care uh, is provided today and look who's at the center to understand all the activities that go on. And there are organizations that are trying. Paul said it, it's not easy. It's a cultural change. It's asking folks to do things differently than they ever have before. You ever try to ask somebody to fold their arms differently? That's hard enough, let alone asking them to practice medicine differently than they were trained over a 12-year period and they're still paying their loans on a regular basis. So yeah, burnout is real uh, and it's something that we have to continue to chop away at uh, and eliminate for patient safety. And I would just jump in here and enhance what John said. I was almost going to disagree with you at first, John, when you're saying that the process improvement is so important. It is, but the way we get there is the, and it's another thing you taught me, which was the importance of senior leadership and the first principle of lean, which is respect for people, Absolutely. not continuous improvement. And when leaders respect the people who are doing the work on the front lines, give them the ability to identify the problems that they identify, to try out the solutions that they have in mind, which are usually 
more correct than the solutions the lead, distant leaders come up with, um, that's when the magic happens because then we have an empowered workforce. And when we align them around our values, which we measure with metrics, um, we can actually have an empowered and aligned workforce. And we put the management system into place that does that. And the health systems that do that seriously are the ones that will succeed uh, because that helps us to rapidly adapt to a changing environment. And that's what Darwin told us, right? You have, you know, the, the, the survival comes down to the ability to adapt to a rapidly changing environment. Doesn't matter how strong you are, how big you are, what your market share is, or what your balance sheet looks like. What matters is your ability to adapt to changes. And in large, complex systems, everybody has to be collaborating on that together. Paul, you're you're spot on. I mean, it's this those two, those four, I guess five words: continuous improvement, respect for people. It's not an or; it's an and, right? I mean, we must have a methodology that we use to make improvement called continuous improvement. But in the absence of respect for people, it will not be sustainable. It'll work for about 45 minutes and then you'll walk away and things will go back to the way they were. But if you're, if you have respect and you engage the front line, those physicians and the leadership in the change methodology, then you have a chance for that to stick, for it to work and make improvements. And there are organizations that have done it. Paul was a CEO at an organization that did it for years. And when he left and joined us, it carried on. So that's where you get the stickiness when you put the standard work, you develop the people and make that happen. That's that's how it works. Too often when the leader changes that three and a half year methodology, they walk away and things totally erupt into something uh, similar to chaos. Uh, and it takes years to get it back on track again. No, it's funny. When I left, um, the, the, the workforce said to the people choosing my replacement, we don't care who you bring in here. We're not going to change the way we're running this organization. It works too well for us. And some of those people were the deepest skeptics when we got started in it five years before. Yeah. Yeah. Because you were people focused. Well, yeah. They, they you know, and right. And those folks, they knew it was working for them. It yeah. wasn't just working for me or for the people above me in the organization. I think to, to your point, you know, both of you articulated it so well, you can't just lead with the process. You've got to lead with with the element of, of we're all in this together. And then the process is, is the is the piece that holds it together. But um, really, really uh, great way of thinking about it. And particularly a time when when uh, we know workforce is so much in challenge, that element is so important. So in interest of time, Paul, first, I want to ask you to put that book up. I want everyone to see that. <laughs> Um, I want to uh, ask both you and John to just share where can people connect with you, learn more about all the amazing work that you're doing. Sure. Well, so I, I have a website, pauldechantmd.com. Uh, my email is paul at pauldechantmd.com. So feel free to reach out either one of those ways and I'll hand it to John. Paul, thanks. And I've, I've had fun uh, having a conversation with you today. And the easiest way for me is at my website as well. That'll have all my uh, other information, coachjohngallagher.com. So I don't have an MD after my name, but Paul, that's what makes some of the work that Paul and I working together uh, really cool. We brought a couple of different perspectives that that really made things powerful in some of the change that we had. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much. And and uh, I can't imagine uh, the amazing work that gets done when you have a doctor and a coach uh, working together. So I uh, want to thank both of you for for what you do. And thank you for joining us here on the Holistic Leadership Podcast. And we look forward to seeing your continued work as we work to transform the healthcare uh, system, as well as all of all the other industries as well. Thank you both. Thank you, Jeffrey. Jeffrey enjoyed it. Thank you very much. You're welcome.